Welcome to Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode was originally published on AD Q&A, a podcast by Crane's Chicago Business. In it, A.D. Quigg, a reporter with Cranes, sits down with AMA CEO Dr. James Madera to talk about the projected physician shortage, our response to the U.S. Supreme Court leaked opinion on Roe v. Wade, and how the AMA is celebrating its 175th anniversary and its tremendous contributions to medicine. Here's AMA's CEO, Dr. James Madera. There were two initial products generated by the AMA early on. And the first was criteria for medical education. At the time, there were proprietary schools. Uh, anyone could buy tickets to lectures, go for a series of four months, do that twice and hang out a shingle. And so there were no standards, for licensing, anything like that at all. And the second um, was really having to do with the quackery that you would predict would come from that situation where there wouldn't be medical education. And it was just rampant quackery uh, going on. And it was unlike England uh, had formalized medical education and function, and so did Germany. Uh, even France at the end of the French Revolution, very beginning of the 19th century, one of the first pieces of legislation had to do with medical education. So we were way behind. Uh, the eight ball at that time. And some of the things I would have to say carried over uh, to the recent pandemic. Uh, we know we were facing quackery uh, of a kind that was rampant during the pandemic. You know, the touting of Invermectin uh, and other drugs, hydrochloroquine, uh, that were shown to be ineffective. Um, so the dual aspects that we were founded on, uh, education and anti-quackery came into play. And the education component was sticking with the science and uh, pre presenting the science as uh, it was e evolving. And that was somewhat challenging to do because it was a novel pandemic and we were learning things as we went. Um, one thing a fellow that focuses on science and communication mentioned to me that sounded uh, important and resonated was that when you're talking about science, there should be physicians and scientists. And as soon as you have a politician behind a podium, talking about science, you politicize it. And we saw that at great scale uh, during the pandemic. And the other aspect I would say as a beginning outline, uh, I'm sure we'll touch on the strategic framework of the AMA. Um, our framework was actually validated in a way, you know, the things that are included in that framework, you know, getting rid of obstacles for physician interaction with patients, dealing with chronic disease, of which we'll have even more now uh, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, all, you know, educating the population for the 21st century. Um, all those things were validated to be really important. Um, and we were sort of proud to have this strategic framework with those three elements and accelerators of health equity, 
uh, innovation and advocacy to, you know, really prove the power of the organization. So, you know, we uh, live by our mission statement, promote the art and science of medicine, the betterment of public health. And through that, we become powerful allies for physicians. Uh, and I think that has allowed us also to increase membership now over the last 11 years. Well, that's a perfect transition. My name is A.D. Quake. I'm a reporter with Crane Chicago Business. I cover City Hall, but I also host a podcast about power, politics, and policy. So it's, I'm looking forward to this conversation, not only to talk about COVID and the past 175 years and the next 2550, but getting back to kind of that, that quackery and, and trust in physicians and where we are now. Um, so let's begin first with trust, trust in physicians. Gallup does this annual rating of professionals for high honesty and ethics. Uh, for 20 straight years, nurses are on top. Uh, this past year, doctors were just behind them, 14 points, second place, which is not a bad place to be. Um, but while those numbers spiked in the first year of COVID, they dropped below even the numbers that we saw in 2017. So what do you think happened there? And what's an effective way to restore that trust? And do you expect it to go even lower given the quackery that you mentioned and how much misinformation there is out there? Yeah, I think there's been a generally uh, an erosion of trust in society, um, globally written, not necessarily toward any profession. Uh, and we in nursing and others are, you know, swept up in that. Uh, and it has to do with, you know, misinformation that is rampant in our society. Uh, some social scientists will say that for stabilization of a democracy uh, in a civil kind of way, you need some things. And one of those things is social capital. And by social capital, you know, extensive networks of interaction, not Twitter or LinkedIn, but personal interactions uh, that are built on, you know, exchange and therefore trust. Uh, you know, strong institutions uh, that are trusted. And, you know, we see in the, you know, the front page of the newspapers today, you know, one of those institutions being questioned uh, already. And then the th a third element that's common in creating civil societies is the shared story. And uh, we start seeing, you know, stories being told that are antithetical uh, in, in this country. So what, do you, we, what, do you, what kind of example are you thinking of? Um, the story of the you know, history of the nation. Uh, you know, we had the story, uh, so it was kind of whitewashed uh, in a way until things like the you know, 1619 uh, work came out. In our own history, uh, we have that as well. Um, you know, we were part of the organization uh, of this country and and we were, you know, we were caught in social forces, um, things that we thought that were going to be really terrific in medical education that made medical education more academically oriented and, and more rigorous. Also uh, as a side product, decreased and collapsed many of the black medical schools in the early part of the 20th century at a time when blacks were not being accepted into universities into which these medical schools migrated. 
So uh, that is still with us today, the relative uh, diminishment of, you know, black physicians. Uh, so we, you know, we have all of these complex elements of our environment that we're part of. And if we start picking out one story or the other, and don't recognize that both of these are our story, uh, you know, we will not have this component that's needed for civil society. How do you think that applies to COVID? Because there were definitely several different stories about the course of the pandemic throughout that we're still, we're still seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a story around, you know, racial and economic stature um, that was just remarkably true. I mean, the, the asymmetry of death and um, disability uh, that occurred. Uh, and then there were stories that were uh, largely a little, around a partisan divide of, you know, do we really have a pandemic? Do these vaccines really work? Um, how about these other drugs that uh, really don't have an effect at all? Um, uh, and then, you know, one of the components was maybe, maybe lost a little bit in all of this is some of the technology uh, advancement. And one of the most remarkable is around telemedicine. You know, and entrepreneurs that are thinking of new ways of doing things will have this 10x vision. I want to change something 10x, and then that will be my, com my new company, my new venture uh, success. And if we go from about January of 2020 to April, May of 2020, just, you know, Explosion. basically a quarter, yeah. uh, it was not 3x and it was not 10x, it was 30 to 100x uh, use in telemedicine uh, based on need, coupled with flexibilities that were allowed by the, you know, the reimbursement systems and the rules of Medicare. What do you think that does for that? trust that we were talking about originally. Because when I think of telemedicine, yeah. I think of getting assigned a random doctor who might be able to say, yeah, you've got the flu. Yeah, no, that's, that's telemedicine that we would not like. Um, and there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is the greatest change in, in disease burden in the country in the last half century is moving from episodic to chronic disease. And chronic disease requires continuity of care. So, you know, sort of the random disconnected intervention uh, is not something that one would wanna have in a chronic disease state. Uh, and so the telemedicine we think of as, you know, expanding the reach of your physician. Uh, so an example would be, I, I had to have an arthroscopy of my knee uh, during, during the pandemic. And my follow-up visit was just to look at the knee, uh, see how it was doing. So that was a telemedicine visit with my physician. And your camera pointed at your knee and you had to go like this? Yeah, I had my wife, you know, he said, pull up your pant leg or drop your pants. I can't remember which. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where's your wife? And Vicky came in, you know, went around my knee. Um, and then I got to meet his wife after I got my pants back on. <laughs> And uh, also meet his new dog. And that was, so it was kind of an intimate, you know, nice thing. Very but it's, it, it ties into this need for continuity of care, though. Let's, let's talk about whether there will be doctors available on telemedicine in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, the nation will come up short on physicians 
within a dozen years, somewhere between 37,000 and 124,000 doctors. And there's about 3,000 who exited the profession during the pandemic. Um, let's talk about that latter number. Uh, burnout could be yeah. one of the main causes. Doctors experienced a ton of trauma during the pandemic, unrelenting death, severe illness, verbal, sometimes physical attacks on members of the profession itself by patients, misinformation as we've been talking about. Um, but having a shortage of doctors only makes burnout worse. Um, what realistic fixes does the AMA support that isn't stuff like self-care, which we've heard so much about it? Yeah, so uh, you know, a couple of background points. Um, the first would be it may even be worse. You know, a, a recent survey in Mayo Clinic proceedings uh, found that about one in five physicians are considering leaving the field uh, in, in the next few years. So that's the first point. Uh, the second point is uh, it's not a matter of needing to be re more resilient. Uh, studies have shown that people that go into medicine are actually have higher levels of resilient, resilience than the rest of the population. Uh, so the problem is the dysfunctionality of the environment that they're in, uh, you know, and that was, you know, me, that, that was uh, exaggerated by having a pandemic lay on top of that. So work uh, done in this organization showed a couple of things. The, the first work that was done in multiple markets, collaboration with RAN, it was a question of what makes doctors happy? You know, what, what is satisfying to doctors? And the answer is number one, two, and three that makes physicians happy is having face time with patients. Um, and the things that make them unsatisfied are all things that get in the way of that. Paperwork. Yeah. So, so what, what does that look like? So that was then measured and... Um, you know, real-time multi-market experiment um, study. And, and it was found that for every hour you spend face-to-face -face with a patient, uh, you spend nearly two hours doing administrative work. And so you end up with this um, extensively trained, expensive workforce that's misused two-thirds of the time. Uh, and so that is something that we really focus on. You know get rid of the administrative trivia. Um, How do you do that? Well, uh, so there are examples of things, just one. Uh, there's something called prior authorization. So uh, you see your physician, your physician gives you a prescription, you take it to the drugstore and the drugstore learns that it needs a prior authorization. And that can take a period of time. The physician has to get involved in a physician's office uh, no, you know, the sort of mean physician office, uh, the physician will face about 34 of those a week. And they take about 16 hours, you know, FTE for two days to adjudicate. And most of those, a lot of those go through. Uh, about a third of physicians report uh, instances uh, where patients get harmed by this gap uh, in their treatment. Um, there are other things that happen that are somewhat aligned with this. Uh, you know, one aspect will be a payer will want to use drug A rather than drug B or C. Uh, 
because perhaps cost. Um, and so a patient will go on A, uh, it will not be effective. We'll go on B, it will not be effective, and C is actually effective. Well, now it comes to the enrollment period uh, in November, and you may switch your, 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 your plan. You may go to another company that has a different plan. You already know uh, with your physician that drug C works for you, and they will say, well, let's go through this series again, A, B, and C. But you, you know. So these are things that waste everyone's time harm patients, uh, and there are any number of these things uh, that can be, can be worked on. Um, longer term, what do you think is the biggest contributor to the expected doctor shortage? I think the, um, the diminished time with patients uh, is the largest contributor. Um, you know, I was on a panel with the, the previous uh, administrator for CMS, who was not a physician, Andy Slavitt. And uh, we were in a setting like this and in the Q&A, someone asked uh, Andy, of all the things that we've talked about in the panel last hour, is there one thing that you have confidence in that would improve the health of the nation? And he thought about it and said, yes. He said, if physicians had more time with patients, that would be the one thing that he would think would improve the health of the nation. So do we need an entirely new or expanded workforce to allow that to happen? Do we need to assign a scribe to every doctor to free up that time to give them more face time with patients? Yeah, we uh, need the more face time. While we're moving in that direction, we probably will need you know, additional physicians as well. And medical schools, the O schools have expanded um, their their pool of accepted students. Uh, there's been a mild expansion of the GME slots for residence, internship and residency, um, but only by about a thousand. Uh, and so there's a lot more conversation going on about you know, expansion of those slots further. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Well, let's shift to the news of the week, uh, the Roe potential decision. Up until recently, the AMA kind of steered clear of controversial political issues starting in about 2019 or so, uh, getting involved in abortion and contraception litigation. The AMA challenged an existing North Dakota law that required doctors to tell pregnant women that an abortion terminates the life of a whole separate, unique living human being. Um, AMA argued the law forced physicians to act as a mouthpiece of the state. There was a, another case in Oregon that the AMA got involved in. What, what spurred that change at the time? Was any of it more women in leadership or a, a push from younger and less conservative members? Well, I would say I, I've only been here 11 years, but in my 11 years, the idea that we stay away from controversy is new to me. Uh, uh, <laughs> It seems to be something we live in. But no, we, we, we have certain principles. Um, and, you know, those principles uh, include access. Uh, those principles include a protection of the interaction, the private interaction between a patient and a physician. Uh, and the abortion restrictions, uh, you know, interfered with access and interfered with that 
patient-physician relationship. Uh, and so the policy of the organization was really that, you know, um, decisions should be made between physicians and patients, um, that uh, physicians should use clinical judgment, uh, patients had to be appropriately informed, there should be an appropriate facility present for whatever medical procedure uh, was in question. And so this relates directly to, to the abortion issue. So what was your reaction to the news this week? Well, I, like everyone else, I was a little surprised. You know, we knew this was coming down the pike and would be sometime in June or July. And, um, woke up one morning and laid out the three papers, you know, the Times, Wall Street Journal and the Chicago Tribune. And because- you, you had cranes on a side table though. Well, no, 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 I have that up in my bedroom. Uh, and, uh, and it, you know, because Chicago can get things in later than New York Times, Wall Street, outside those two towns, um, you know, that was the headline. So it was, it was surprising to me Surprising um, that it leaked or surprising of both. what the decision was? Surprising that it leaked um, and surprising that, uh, I guess it was surprising but not shocking, uh, you know, the the tilt toward uh, that decision that was in draft form and preliminary. So what what should members expect the AMA to do if indeed it is struck down in June or July? So we have an amicus uh, brief um, regarding this case around these points that I made, you know, access, uh, medical decisions belong between a patient and a physician. Uh, so the amicus brief has been done. Uh, we will be releasing a statement indicating that, you know, we recognize this as a draft form, um, but we know what our principles are that we would hope would be uh, recognized. So separate from an amicus brief, should we expect the AMA and other physician organizations or medical organizations to kind of rally to Congress to say, change the law? Uh, we interact with Congress all the time. And those principles, a couple of which I mentioned, are something we talk about all the time. You know, access, safety net, protection of the patient-physician interaction. How, how do you expect this to, this is going to split the country if it does go forward as expected. So. As an organization that represents doctors around the country, um, procedures might be allowed, disallowed, severely limited. What kind of challenge does that pose to you as a leader and to membership overall when you're trying to represent a lot of interests at once? Yeah, you know, I, there I think we will wait and see. Um, you know, one thing that struck me odd in the language of the draft was, you know, the idea that um, Roe versus Wade created an inflammation in society, and this would resolve it in some way as opposed to exacerbate it. Um, so I anticipate as I think papers and the press do, uh, that this will be, um, if the draft form continues, uh, and that is the final decision, that that will be a little surprising, uh, that we wouldn't have you know, many more legal actions uh, and much more controversy around this. Um, you know, the sad thing is that it has nothing, you know, this is separate from AMA policy is that, you know, there was a leak and that's, it's, it's good that legal decisions come to us in less of a tentative way 
in more of a finalized way. Um, and as you know, I mentioned in terms of civil societies, you know, one of the principles that guides a civil society in a democratic process is strong institutions. And so, you know, I, I hate I hate it when I see any institution uh, that might be weakened. What would the impact be on women's health and maternal mortality going forward? Because that's maternal mortality is such an integral part to health equity in the discussions that we've been having in the past three years. Yeah, well, I think you can only look back in the past. Um, prior to Roe v. Wade, there were somewhere between uh, 200,000 and a million abortions performed illegally in this country per year. Um, many of those ended up in hospitals with sepsis. Uh, Cook, Cook County Health used to handle something like 4,000 women a year. You know, 20% of the women who came uh, to the hospital with an illegal abortion that was were septic, um, the death rate was about 20%. Uh, and then a common uh, treatment for abortion at the time, surprisingly, was Lysol. And that death rate, if you came to the hospital uh, after Lysol-induced abortion, uh, death rate was about 40%. Uh, so these are serious, serious issues. Are there other threats to physician autonomy or invasions of the physician-patient relationship where lawmakers might be forcing words into the mouth of physicians going forward? Are there other areas that you're worried about that that Roe might touch? Um, well, getting away from Roe, I mean, there are other areas that may or may not relate to Roe. So one area that um, we dealt with was the ability of physicians and particularly pediatricians, uh, if they were worried um, based on the history they had with their patient, uh, to be able to ask questions about firearms in the house. Um, and uh, there was a, one of our states um, uh, tried to create a law that would prevent that kind of conversation happening between a physician and the patient. Um, so those sorts of things will pop up frequently, perhaps, and when I say frequently, perhaps more frequently in the future than in the past, given the, uh, just the conflict um, that separates, uh, you know, two views of our country. Um, and, and then, you know, exacerbated by recognizing that healthcare is very personal. Um, so if you want to push on a social issue uh, that is meaningful to people, uh, having that be healthcare uh, is one way of, of defining an issue that will create separation of, 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 of views. Well, let's shift to another Supreme Court decision, uh, National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, which came down about a decade ago, I think in June. Um, this essentially defended the individual mandate. Where did you think we'd be in terms of Americans' access to healthcare and the country's general wellness by now? Were you, were you optimistic then and are you disappointed now? Well, let me just separate into two components. One is the, you know, the Affordable Care Act we strongly supported because it dealt with, the, with one of you know, our uh, concerns, our principal concerns around access. Um, in terms of whether there's one solution in this country, uh, the AMA policy 
to date has been for a pluralistic um, approach to healthcare where one has uh, uniform coverage but different choice. And you know, when, when one runs, starts talking about everyone being covered, um, yes, you know, people should have, be covered and have access. When you talk about one way of doing that in a population uh, like ours, where Manhattan, Kansas is so different than Manhattan, New York. Um, well, even where we're sitting now is so that. different from Englewood. Yeah, absolutely. So did you think we'd be further along now in terms of access and equity than we are? Yeah, I think we recognize the, the inequities that occurred in society, including uh, dramatically in healthcare, but the spotlight was so strongly put on this issue during the pandemic um, that it took some people's breath away. Uh, that this was a country that was so rich um, and yet the coverage and access was so poor. You know, there was a study uh, done, uh, led by Johns Hopkins um, that was published in the, I think it was November, December of 2019. So right before the pandemic. And it was a detailed study of what countries are best prepared for a pandemic. Uh, and out of the 100 plus countries that were surveyed, the US came out as the best prepared. But then when the pandemic hit, it looked like we were the least prepared. Uh, and so if you look at the criteria that were used, uh, one was laboratory science, um, you know, physician education, uh, this, that, and the other thing where we rank very high. But where we didn't rank high uh, was on access. Um, was on things that related to continuity of care um, and uh, also not ranked high was the sense that we weren't the, we had, you know, could have easy political shifts in the wind um, by fiat. And so when you look at those, you know, 30 or 40 criteria and you looked at the result, seemed like those things were really important and were underestimated in importance. Where do you think we stand in terms of resolve to increase access now? Because we've, as you mentioned, the spotlight was pretty glaring at the time, but where do you think we are in terms of moving forward and being ready for the next pandemic and having that basic access improved? Well, I mean, there are organizations like the AMA that are fighting to expand that access. Uh, um, there are obviously political hurdles uh, to get through. Talk about some um, And then there are other ways that one could uh, maneuver around some of these things. So I'll give you an example. At our um, innovation company in Health, Health 2047 in Menlo Park, uh, one of the companies that spun out is Zing Health. And Zing is a Medicare Advantage uh, program. So the Medicare Advantage uh, finances are set by being part of the Medicare Advantage program. But it's structured to serve underserved communities and historically disinvested communities uh, and provide elements and accoutrements, uh, coaching, contacts, um, you know, food, even perhaps helping to pay with an electrical bill. Uh, 
that is very different than the other Medicare Advantage companies that really tend to mimic, um, you know, if I'm at General Motors and I retire, you know, a payer will want to have an MA plan that reflects the kind of benefits I had at General Motors because I'll see that as a consistency. And so what has been left out uh, are the historically disadvantaged communities. Um, but that's an example of a way of creatively touching those communities. Walk through some of the biggest political challenges to getting there, getting to that better access. Well, I think there are some um, different views of why people get sick. Uh, one view is it's an individual's fault. Um, and, uh, you know, a more egalitarian view is that we're all in this together as a community and that uh, there are individuals that uh, are ill because of quotes, uh, behavioral aspects. But when you start digging into that, uh, you start finding what are termed social determinants of health. You know, uh, you know, I was at an institution in the South Side of Chicago, you know, and there were food deserts. And if you went into the local bodega, um, you know, you could get things in cans with high salt concentrations. Uh, so if, if that is your environment, uh, that environment, that social determinant is going to dramatically affect your health and had nothing to do with your choices. You took the choices that were forced on you. So part of the political shift is going to be changing how people view why people get sick. Yeah, I mean, if we can, if there could be a view that we're, just like we were all in here together, let's look at it this way. Uh, we have 800,000 physicians, 330 million uh, patients. We can supplement that with 5,000 hospitals, 4 million nurses, and we have $4 trillion. Why don't we deploy that $4 trillion in a way that gets maximal health for everyone in society? Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. I want to get back to something you brought up earlier, which was uh, AMA's history with race. Um, you, you alluded to the National Medical Association being created because the AMA wouldn't allow black physicians to join. Um, we've seen a, a shuffle in leadership at JAMA due to comments over structural racism. How is the AMA progressing in its, in its equity pledge and how are you kind of uh, keeping track of how well you're succeeding? So that's part of the core of the strategic framework. So we have these three arcs that I mentioned and we have three accelerators that touch on all of those arcs innovation, advocacy, and health equity is another. Uh, we've created a center for health equity, but all the business units have equity targets um, internally within the building, externally in work that's done. Uh, we've created a fellowship in, in health justice uh, in collaboration uh, with other, uh, in collaboration with a group in the Chicago area from uh, banks like Northern Trust to uh, health leaders like Rush and uh, the Children's Hospital at Northwestern. 
uh, West Side United. Uh, we've um, invested uh, in the West Side United project. Uh, we have some of our active work having to do with hypertension uh, uh, that we're trying to uh, spread in the West Side as well as nationally. And we have particular sensitivity in our hypertension work that you know, one of the subpopulations that is uh, dramatically affected are in the, the African-American population. Uh, so we have efforts with um, Ebony in essence, um, trying to uh, get to families, uh, the idea that, you know, you're gonna have hypertension, it feels just fine. So it's what people call it the silent killer uh, until you have an adverse event. And for get that recognition, the population, um, and in, including the access to cuffs where home blood pressures can be taken. So we have a, a lot of things in a lot of uh, areas uh, around this theme. Um, one that will be rolled out in a couple of months is uh, a peer network effort. And that has recognized that if you go to any major institution, you find pretty well-defined um, efforts in quality and safety. Uh, and it turns out it's been learned that uh, what you need to instill equity in those institutions uh, has the same dynamic, the same need, the same processes that are already present in those offices of quality and safety. Uh, so you can uh, sort of on the cheap, so to speak, uh, have institutions that are so motivated uh, to attack this equity or the equity issue in, in their health system as well. So this is a big part of the strategic framework of the AMA. How do you think it's going? I think it's going well, like all the parts of our strategic framework, I wish they would all go faster. Um, but it's uh, a complex nation with 330 million people. Uh, and it's gonna take some time. Yeah, I'm interested in um, effective ways you think to change the leadership hierarchy. Cause something I think we learned during uh, George Floyd and me too was about how ingrained certain power structures can be in organizations. And there's been a, a big push to make C-suites or leadership of every organization more diverse. Um, what do you think works uh, in that regard in medicine? I, I think targeting it, um, you know, m my own experience from past employment has been if you do a search uh, and you want a diverse group uh, for this position of, you know, min minority candidates, uh, women as well as men, um, if you say to the search firm, you know, I would like this to be a diverse group that comes to me, you'll get the standard group. But if you say to the search firm, uh, I want a diverse group. And if I don't get a group that looks like this, then I won't accept that. You'll have to go back to the market and you have to, um, you have to get out of the, the old, uh, you know, dominantly white male networks uh, to, to achieve that. And I, that's going to be uh, very important. Uh, there's a pretty good literature that demonstrates that you know diverse groups actually have produced better products. Uh, so it's important in that way as well. Um, 
one of the things I noted uh, going back to um, the SCOTUS decision recently, um, you know, uh, in that in the, in that draft, it was noted that you know abortion was never mentioned in the Constitution, and someone pointed out actually women were never mentioned in the Constitution uh, at all. So it's you know it's a society that's come uh, a long way, has a long way to go. Well, I'll ask you something I ask everybody that I have on my podcast, which is what's something I didn't ask you that you want to talk about? Well, I, you know, I would have talked more about our, some of the innovation that's happening, um, you know, matter in Chicago, but also health 2047 uh, on the West coast. And if we think of that strategic framework of the AMA, uh, the sort of the commercial translation of that uh, is what happens in Menlo park and health 2047 and the, the nuance, the differentiating factor uh, of those companies that spin out is the problem definition. That we don't define the problem at the administrative level, which is where it generally is done uh, in a lot of the tools and services that we have in healthcare, but at the patient physician level, where we think sort of the truth of the healthcare system resides. So the way we do things currently as a nation, if we define the problem at the administrative level, it's almost um, as though, you know, if you take a company like General Motors, that they would pay attention only to the dealers, but not to the drivers and the mechanics. Uh, we define the problems at the driver and mechanic level. So localize that for me. Tell me some of the work that Matter is doing that you think will have that kind of impact. Well, I, I would separate those two things, Matter and Health 2047. Um, matter is, uh, you know, the, the, participates in development of new ventures. Uh, it maybe is less hands-on uh, than Health 2047. Um, and our role in matter is uh, really just trying to give uh, the entrepreneurs a sense of what the problems are at the patient and physician level. At Health 2047, uh, those are projects that are dedicated to this you know, commercial uh, reproduction of the AMA's strategic arc with, uh, you know, seriously uh, hands-on to assure that we get uh, to that site between physician uh, and patient interactions. So we'll close on, or ending where we began, which is 175. Where do you hope the AMA is at 200? Well, 200, I hope we made um, progress and these three strategic arcs with those three accelerators. And the reason we selected those is largely that they're something I would call pre-competitive, that I don't know what the healthcare system is gonna be in 2050, um, but I know that if we haven't dealt with chronic disease, if we haven't removed obstacles from physician-patient uh, uh, interactions, and if we haven't created a workforce educated for the 21st century, doesn't matter what the system is, it's not gonna work. Uh, so those are things that we view as pre-competitive and we have to solve some of these problems for any system to work in 2050. Dr. Madera, thank you so much. Thank you, it was fun. Thanks everybody for joining us. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.